Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming back and listening to No Earthly Explanation with your hosts, Donald Schmidt and myself, Brittany Barbieri. Everything's been crazy on my end, Don. What's been new with you in the last week and a half? Well, we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Roswell incident at our uh, nationally and internationally famous UFO museum in Roswell. And so we decided early on we were going to commemorate this for the entire year. And we're still working up um, new displays and we're working up a wall of witnesses, over 150 witnesses with their pictures and their testimony. So uh, it's going to have quite an impact to the visitors there. And uh, just came off of a, a couple of lectures and uh, working on a, another book. And uh, we have another uh, offer to option one of the books for another motion picture or possible uh, TV series. So uh, it's a type of uh, um, activity that always makes one, you know, very grateful for not the attention, but at least the, uh, the uh, respect that we're providing something that other venues are not. And um, that's why I'm, I'm so thrilled. I'm so happy about, you know, this blog, this show, that we have an opportunity to uh, deal with an audience on a regular basis and provide them with guests that would be stimulating and provide a lot of new uh, food for thought. Absolutely. And then speaking of guests, and first of all, let me just backtrack for a second. All of your information and the possible TV show sounds amazing, by the way. Very much looking forward to this. And I can't wait to hear more later. But in the meantime, I want you to tell me and the listeners who you have brought on tonight for our guest. Well, we have UFO activist, lobbyist, Stephen Bassett, who has made it his life's career to represent the UFO community in Washington and providing as far as information on the political front, as far as uh, press conferences at the Washington Press Club. And Stephen Bassett was the one who had orchestrated the 2013 citizens hearings where there were witnesses and high ranking officials from all over the world who testified at a mock congressional hearings before six congressional, former congressional, as far as members. And uh, you're talking about something very historic. So we're very pleased that Stephen is joining us today. Yeah, I'm ready to get into this. Let's go ahead and get started. So good to be back with all of you today. And we'd like to welcome a dear friend and colleague. Who would have ever thought that there would be such a thing as a UFO activist? Someone who actually has lobbied in Washington, who has spent the better part of his life for as long as I've known our, our, our guest, Stephen Bassett, for presenting this subject, the subject of UAPs, UFOs, on a front that uh, one would think that you couldn't fight City Hall. And yet he's demonstrated time and time that you knock on the right doors with enough persistence and enough commitment that uh, you do get a response. I'd like to think that uh, much of what has transpired over the last two years is a result of uh, much of his efforts. And that's why I'm not only very honored to call him a friend 
but just as honored to have him with us today, uh, Stephen Bassett. How are you, Steve? Don, congratulations on your program. And uh, thank you for letting me uh, chat with you and Brittany, looking forward to it. Thanks, same here, Stephen. It's nice to finally meet you, talk to you. Don said wonderful and amazing things about you over the years. I paid him enough. <laughs> when you do, it pays off, you know? <laughs> Look, I have a sense of humor, so you're just gonna have to put up with oh, yeah. it, so just, just prepare. Okay. We, always, we always have a good time when we're together. Mm -hmm. so. But uh, we, can, we can mix the two, we can, we can do both today. But uh, we're at a crucial time within the very history of the UAP, UFO phenomenon. We're at a crossroads. And I think much of it is, is contingent on us at the moment. And I fully expect Steve will uh, lead the charge. So what do, uh, just to encapsulate where we've been, where you've been, how you actually took this by a different set of reins, whereas the rest of us were looking to the research and trying to solve the phenomenon, you know, the, 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 one of the biggest mysteries of all time on the, in the field. And you saw a different approach. You went to those who we are convinced have the answers, those who could open this up and reveal, you know, all the deep, dark secrets overnight. What began the chase? What would you suggest was the one case or personal experience or one individual that brought to where you are today? Let's see, uh, I, I am an activist, a political activist. I kind of like to call myself a disclosure acti activist, truth activist. Disclosure, of course, is a term I use to refer to, uh, refer to the confirmation of the ET presence by our heads of state, capital D disclosure. I'm not a researcher, not a journalist. I am an activist and, 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 and behind it all, I'm an anti-war activist because my, my uh, I guess you could say worldview and thinking about things was dramatically shaped by the Vietnam War, which happened to arrive just as I was heading off to college. Uh, it went downhill from there. So um, where I got lucky is that when I decided I wanted to do something that meant something to me, something I have a passion for, uh, which not everybody's able to do in their lives. And so I feel grateful for that. In 1995, I got lucky. I picked a good door to enter the genre of the UAP, ET phenomena. Uh, and the door that I picked was to volunteer for Dr. John Mack's organization in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right. Four right. months, boy, just being near uh, that, that organization and having the chance to meet John Mack in 1996 uh, around the issue of contact, which was still, how would you say, uh, not at the center of the arena of this issue and a major problem for both the government and for, for researchers and academics trying to look at this issue. That's right. But after four months, I knew that my time was pretty much going to end. I was a volunteer, I was a researcher, but what a wonderful start. And I came up with an idea that I, and, and I, to this day, the odds that I came up with this idea in 96 and was able to do what I did, it seems so remote. And yet I owe it all to the truth embargo. 
I owe it mm -hmm. everything good that's happened to me to the United States government. Why? Because the United States government was so successful in its, in its embargo on the reality of this issue and contained and subversion and coercion and everything else. Each word apply. As of, as of July of 1996, when I headed down to, uh, to uh, Bethesda, Maryland, where my, I had had family living for years and I always had a place to stay, no one had ever been either wise enough or dumb enough to register with the United States government regarding the extraterrestrial issue, which is a pretty significant issue, we all agree, that has significant political implications. Okay, fine. No one had ever done it. And I'm thinking, I could be the first. No one, I mean, ever, no one would have ever dared done it. That's the problem. Whatever, the, there's a lot of reasons. You know, it's not just, the, it's not just, well, the truth, here's the way the truth embargo works the most in that area is that if you are a sane person with a family, uh, some good friends and connections and, and other relations and, and a job with a, a decent company, and you decide you get a burning desire to go register as the first lobbyist on the ET issue, mm -hmm. essentially you have to kiss all that goodbye. Right. It's, a <laughs> it's like, that's right. gone. Right. Yeah. Who's <laughs> gonna do that, right? Oh, who's gonna, it has to be somebody so detached from all of the sinews of society and family and everything else. And there's no. just, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I got nothing to lose. Right. So I went, I, 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 I hurried down there to get set up and register because I thought maybe someone would beat me to it. You know, it's a great idea. Whoever has an idea all by themselves in a world this big, it would be um, 23 years before the second person to register as a lobbyist on this issue, uh, did their thing. Uh, so I, I had a lot of time. And, 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 and so at that point, I realized, you, you talk about big fish in little pond, little fish in big pond. The situation I was in, in July of 1996, is I had just walked on a field of play mm -hmm. where nobody else was there. Right. In other words, in other words, I could just run up and down the field all I wanted. I would, I, and, I, and, and I was the only one to carry the ball, right? <laughs> so if a touchdown was going to be made, I had to make it. I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I have no competition. So, well, as, you know, as being a competition, Steve, you also had a lot of naysayers within the UFO community who were telling you it was a waste of time and it was a wasted effort and that you weren't about to crack, you know, that uh, that door of disclosure. That they had never uh, successfully done it, so why should you think you'd have a chance? Okay, well, let me let me clarify that a little, Don. I really, very few, there's very few people in the field gave me any grief about this. They, they kind of thought it was kind of cool, all right? Um, and so I never problem with it. I remember I came in in 96. Things are starting to move along at that point. Uh, the worst, I think, of the ridicule and the humiliation aspect of this was subsiding. So I got lucky. Uh, those who came into the field earlier, like, uh, let me think, Don Schmidt, had mm -hmm. to put up with the real, the yes. real, okay? So I, I, I was Rosie Ruiz. I just jumped into the last uh, couple thousand yards of the Boston Marathon, ran across, said I win. But, but let me tell you. All I was is one new player in the field who happened to, to, to try to open a niche that needed to be open. Uh, but I, I didn't have contacts. I didn't have the resources. I was going to make a big splash. 
But what I did was I put down markers uh, and there's a series of firsts. Okay, again, I, 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 I'm starting to realize, you know, I may not be the only person on this particular field anymore and I'm not actually. So first person to register as a, uh, a formal lobbyist on the ET issue. Right. First uh, person to register a political action committee on the issue. The first person to launch an exopolitical conference is in Washington, D.C. or anywhere, I think, on the issue. All right. Um, and so Which I had the good fortune of uh, being invited to. And, 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 then and there, yeah, the, at the Washington Press Club, right. Those were the days. Uh, yeah, so yes. these first, what, what I was really doing, in a sense, is something as simple as this. Most people knew it's a pretty important issue. Okay, fine. They also knew that, like, you really don't want to talk about that at the office and all that. Fine. But the simple truth was, is that an issue of this magnitude, there should be a lobbyist. I mean, there's lobbyists in Washington for everything. I mean, everything. Uh, pesticides on your vegetables, got a lobbyist for that. All right. Be, uh, being able to, to, to ride your bicycle on the sidewalk as opposed to only in the street, got a lobbyist for that. No lobby for this. So I did that as a marker. Okay, look. It's, it should have one now it does political action committee there wasn't one there's political action committees for everything so i never raised much money and it was not much i could do but just setting it up and promoting it and telling people was a way of saying okay look this is appropriate isn't it and it's and it's a message that's subtle it, it goes to the politicians it goes to the journalists and so forth just the fact that one exists just it parks itself somewhere near the back of their mind uh that you know okay okay there's a lobbyist and so forth all right so maybe i should pay a little closer attention all right and so thus begun my activist career in 96 did i speak yes Steve, if, if i may uh, interject sure that before that time we we had a common foe and that was the government of the idea that they were the very arbiters of the uh cover-up for their approaching 50 years and the idea that why would we trust, why would we even cooperate, extend an olive branch with the thought that they would ever recipro reciprocate. And that's where, in your case, it was not only wide open, but it was a gamble. I mean, I, I, I personally, I praise you because you were marching up those steps at City Hall and demanding them to open the door. No one else had ever done that before because they were quickly, you know, dispatched as far as to the funny farm. Well, it wasn't quite that blatant. Uh, uh, I, I have a rule about how I deal with any entity that has nuclear weapons. I don't, I don't try to be too audacious. I don't have the door. Uh, I just kind of poke at them. Uh, right. But right. Uh, the truth is, of course, is that, is that coming at them and just engaging the issue on a political basis was getting closer to what was needed. The, the United States government would have been happy if, if uh, all of our fine colleagues, including yourself, continued to research this issue for another 75 or 100 years. As long as we were researching the issue and we could pile up all the evidence we want, as long as we're not pushing them towards a political resolution, they are safe. And so the process of going political on this was inevitable. I was early, but I, I arrived, again, with minimal resources, no credentials, right? Uh, but 
and nothing to lose, not going to go away. And so I'm, I'm working these angles. Um, but and while I registered as a lobbyist, believe me, I've done very little what we'll call pure lobbying. You want to do a lot of lobbying, you need to have a whole bunch of cash and you cruise around mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. and you talk to people and you sort of let them know that you, know, you might want to donate to their political action committee. And they say, well, why don't you come on in? Someone like me, I get to go in and I, I'll go to an office and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be talking to a 19-year-old intern, right? Mm -hmm. Or one of their first hires. It's okay. It's okay. I, I, went, I, I went about letting them know that I'm here. Most, most of my principal contribution over the 26 years, I believe, has been getting the media more involved than it was. It was always been involved, but I really have worked hard to push this issue to the media, to the media, to the media. In fact, on and then, and then chronicling it on my website, paradigmresearchgroup.org, under resources, print media archive, I now have 13,000 links to news articles in the mainstream English language press about this issue. And no when you read them, you discover they're, they're not bad. They're good. Okay. Um, and so. And as a result, you've also been invited as a activist, as a lobbyist to uh, spread the word throughout the world. You've been invited well, yeah as far as, and you you present as far as the same game plan the the same as far as end goal as far as target what and what and, and the only thing that you will see is disclosure with a capital d and you have been able and you've been afforded a venue in country after country well that that's and, that's because the, the genre does have its world that there is this community around the world of this issue and therefore there are broadcasts you can get on. There are now podcasts you can get on. There, there and you can get written up in papers. You can lecture in different countries. Um, again, uh, it's, there's limits. So yes, I have primarily been an, an information deliverer. Uh, uh, Twelve, thirteen hundred interviews in media, scores and scores of uh, lectures for speaking tours around the world, so forth. Not vast audiences. I've never been able to speak at a university. I've tried. They definitely don't want to touch me. Uh, but the point is, is that, that I'm doing that. But at the same time, I'm constantly pushing stories to the media. In, 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 um, in, in my career, 26 years, I now have on my website uh, about 580 articles in English language press that has mentioned me or the Paradigm Research Group. This is not to brag, but rather to say that in order to have that happen, you have got to work it. You can't yes. just wait for them to call you. But, in its, but also of these 13,000 articles that are linked on my website, which probably represent maybe a fifth of the English language articles written on the subjects in 1947 without even getting into the foreign language, which is a big misconception people have. The media doesn't cover it. They do. They've covered it all uh, and in many cases well. And in the last uh, 10 years, the, the, the ridicule articles have almost completely disappeared. What the media hasn't done, and I could not persuade them to do, though I think others are going to do that, is to go Woodward and Bernstein. Mm -hmm. In other words, mm -hmm. the Washington Post was covering the developments around Watergate. Somebody broke in, somebody got arrested, somebody's going to trial. That's news. And they did that. But this story was big. And so they went further. 
they assigned two reporters, Woodward and Bernstein, and they said, go dig, find out what the hell's going on here, go through trash cans, start interviewing people. And so they went on an investigative uh, project that ultimately brought down the president of the United States. What the media in, in this virtually worldwide, with few exceptions, has not done is to do to go investigatory on this. In other words, if something happens, they cover it, but they're not going to send some reporters out to start sneaking around the parking lot of the Pentagon, going through the trash or looking for uh, Mark Feltz to meet in a garage in Roslyn and get the poop on this. They sort of knew you don't go there, right? You can cover this. And there's thousands of articles about sightings and this and that, reports and books and conferences. It's all there. But had they gone investigative, had they really gotten serious, well, there would have been a big confrontation between the government and our top media, but probably they would have bought the truth embargo down. So my job was to keep pushing it and pushing it and expanding it. And it's a slow process. It, 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 it was made slow by the truth embargo itself, but that's the role I played. And when I did have money on occasion, I was able to do some grander things. Uh, probably the most uh, thing I'm most uh, 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 proud of is I was able to finally put an idea into uh, into uh, action in, in 2013 that I had been thinking about for almost 10 years, and that was to create a mock congressional hearing at the National Press Club in Washington. Right, right. And that had some impact. So it's a, but I don't want people to get the idea that I was some big force that was going around Washington and pumping those doors. Let's um, expand. Yeah, I'm poking let's at them and working. Let's expand on, uh, at least let's, let's back up and digress for a moment to the uh, Rockefeller initiative. Yes. And, uh, and how you were involved with that and explain what the Rockefeller, you know, what Lawrence Rockefeller's role in this very field happened to be at that time. Yeah, you, you want all the billionaires involved you can get, uh, always. Boy, I'd like to sit down with Elon Musk just for 20 minutes. Not smoke a blunt. I don't, I just, I don't do that, but I'd like to talk to him about this. Same for Branson, same for Bezos. Um, it, probably one of the, if not the most important political development related to the whole history of this phenomenon is in fact the Rockefeller Initiative, which interestingly enough lasted three years from right. March of 1993 to about October of, you know, actually not even October, kind of the summer of 96 which is right. when I came into the field. I didn't even know it existed. It would be some time before I knew that there was a Rockefeller initiative. And I think I may have been the person that gave it that name. I, I believe you correct, yeah. I think so. But so, and, and the reason, that, the principal reason that I learned about it in the world is the uh, wonderful work of uh, Canadian researcher Grant Cameron, mm -hmm. who, before I even showed up, had started a website called uh, uh, presidentialufo.com. And it was all focused on whatever, anything that happened during various presidential administrations. Great idea. <coughs> Naturally, it was Canadian that came up with this idea, not an American. Yeah, right, right, right. And Grant, who I love to death, uh, is this great guy. He's a Canadian, so naturally he's nice and polite and fun and all that. Uh, but he had a good, solid, safe job at the university up there. Let's see, where, where, what is it? Oh, God, I, can't. I think it was, I, I've, I've forgotten the city, but it was 
maybe Calgary, no, whatever. Anyway, the point is, yeah, nice. And so, and, 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 and up in Canada, they give you like lots of weeks off. We don't do that down here. We basically just want to work ourselves to death and then retire and die. Oh. The point is that up there, he had, he had all, and what he would do, for, he was doing his research on the early web and so forth. He, he, I think he kind of decided that that's what he wanted to do. And so during his vacations, he would, he would hop in his Cadillac. I want, I never asked him about this, but I, I think it was one of those old classic Cadillacs with the fins, I'm thinking. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he would cross the border very quietly, not making a fuss, and start cruising around the United States, visiting presidential libraries and going through documents on this. And, uh, and also the National Archives and start building up this, this website of this information. Well, not surprisingly, when the Rockefeller Initiative got underway, he found, about, found out about it fairly soon. And so he is looking into it. And what was it? It was this, in a few words, a billionaire progressive supporter of the Democratic National Committee, friend of the new president, William Jefferson Clinton, calculated correctly that we had won the Cold War, the Soviet Union had broken up, uh, let go 14 republics, outlawed the Communist Party, and went capitalist. <laughs> you know, we won, right? Uh, and the, the threat of nuclear war probably was dramatically less. It was a new era, so it was time to tell the truth about the ETs, which I know Lawrence knew. And so, okay, he, he could have approached Bush uh, uh, because the Cold War really ends under George W. Bush. Correct. H. W. Bush rather. But uh, the, the, there was a, a war in Kuwait and Iraq going on, uh, and it was not, the timing was not good. I, I have a feeling, and I know for a fact, that if That's Bush had won a second term, he'd approached him for sure. Right. But it was Bill Clinton. And so Bill wins, and he right away approaches the administration and says, uh, how can I help you get all the UFO files out? <laughs> and the first person that learned this was uh, John Gibbons, the uh, Dr. John Gibbons, the head of his uh, science and technology office. And I, I, I imagine that John's reaction was less than, how would you say, uh, ebullient. Uh, mm -hmm. I think he said, look, he thought to himself, I didn't, I didn't order this. Who ordered this, right? <laughs> I just got a great job and it's gonna right. be wonderful and we're gonna advance science. And now I've got a billionaire just faxed me and said, I wanna meet with the president and present a report on releasing the UFO files. I, I know he's still alive. I wanna meet this guy. I wanna ask him that question. And maybe one day I will interview him on some show that I might have anyway. Uh, and thus it began. It went on for three years. Uh, Bill Clinton was involved. Hillary Clinton was involved. Hillary was involved, was involved. Right? George Stephanopoulos was involved. Bill Richardson right. knew about it. Al Gore knew about it. A lot of people knew about it. The press didn't touch it. Yep. And the reason that it didn't maybe get out more than it could have is because the unique situation of that presidency. Bill Clinton was not uh, not well liked by the Pentagon or anybody else involved in the military intelligence complex. Which may have made all the difference, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it totally changed. It. I mean, it's right. not that they, they just didn't care for him. They really didn't like him. Right. They didn't right. want him to be president. Worse, he had he had snatched the second term away from the great 
George H.W. Bush, a war hero, uh, CIA, I mean, all of these things, it, and suddenly it's gone and an Arkansas governor is there. And so what happened in a few words is that our military and intelligence community basically in, in one way or another, however they do this, came to the conclusion, you're not getting those files. You're not going to make history on this. Forget about it, Bill. It's not going to happen. And by the way, maybe or maybe not coincidentally, Bill Clinton, with, before he even got going, and no matter how well he was, he, was, he was conducting the presidency, was attacked relentlessly, endlessly, one after another after another. And then the wife, too, Mrs. Clinton, and I think some of his friends, I think the, I think the pets, I think got br brutalized pretty much, his brother, whatever, anything was attacked. It, and the press back then, I remember them commenting occasionally in some op-eds, op-eds, why all these attacks on the Clintons? They're doing pretty well. I mean, presidency goes pretty well, as we can tell. What did this guy do? Well, uh, maybe part of that reason was that they were going to contain this guy because a billionaire Rockefeller was in the door, and he's, he's got the money to back up whatever the hell is needed from the outside to push the, the Pentagon to release these files. I don't know. But they gave it a shot. It lasted three years. And Grant Cameron followed it and filed FOIAs about it. And in the year 2000, after he's left office, and George, uh, let me see, just before he's, he's leaving office, he's put a FOI request into the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and somebody goofed and sent him all the files. Right. right. They just they, they they didn't think of it. Oh, oh, okay. This Canadian wants all the files from the OSTP regarding uh, anything to do with uh, Rockefeller and UFOs. Let's send them to him, right? And so, and, and and one of the reasons that that happened is because at that time in 1996, uh, or rather 2000, okay, the Office of Science Technology Policy in the White House was still not under the Presidential Records Act. It was FOIA-able. It had been under the Records Act, you couldn't get it. it would, you'd have to wait until they got through. Right. And so one of the very first things that just a, a short time later, just a couple of months, I think not that many months after Grant gets those files, one of the first things that George W. Bush does is put the Office of Sec Technology Policy underneath the Presidential Records Act, so yeah. no more Canadians are going to be getting That's our right. stuff. Okay, so, <laughs> so, and and Grant gets a thousand pages and, and sends them to me, sends me a copy. I immediately make a copy of these, and it was really a bitch of a job. And I make some, and I and I and I deliver one to the Washington Post. I deliver another set to USA Today. I even talk to one of their editors first, and then send, so I'm sending you the file crickets okay crickets. been there many times yes no, nothing okay that's right. okay again you keep poking at the bear until mm -hmm. it either goes away or eats you i mean that's pretty much how activism sometimes is so that was the rockefeller initiative and he but 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 and this is again a major factor in in, in what's going to be our success pretty soon of getting the disclosure of et presence is that media was changing every year and the internet was rolling it was 2000 i had a website i had a website for about two years 
And so I took about 150 of the primo documents that had been obtained by Grant and put them up on the web, my website, nicely thumbnailed and organized and everything with photos. And they're still there, <laughs> in other words. And so now all I had to do after that was just hand that link to journalist after journalist after journalist and say, go look at these. And many of them did. Did they suddenly send out a team of reporters? No. But the point is, when you're talking about something of this magnitude, such as bringing civil rights to a whole class of people in a nation that have been denied that for hundreds of years, you don't slam dunk anything. It takes time. And so you work it and work it and work it and work it and work it. That's what we've had to do. And that was one another contribution, which is, is pretty much Grant. But, I, and, but he's a researcher, right? So Grant's going on to do other research. I get something like that. I never let go. I'm, I'm not going on to something else. When you're an activist and you get something, you just keep using it forever. You have a very singular goal. Uh, and that is to, to produce political change. And so I continue to this day to push the Rockefeller Initiative and announce it and what have you, though it's much better known. And, and so forth. And so you're, I'm trying, I guess you're maybe getting a picture of how a poor political activist uh, op, had to operate or did operate in, in the time of the, the truth embargo. Um, and all I can say is I didn't have any, any aspect of my life that would stop me, right? It was like, uh, uh, I, I'm very resourceful. I've never had to live in a tent, but you know, I've, I've looked at some on Amazon. The point is, is that, is that, is that, is that, is that uh, it, 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 but again, there was nobody on the field but me. And so I'm, right. I'm running around causing trouble. And, and so I think I helped. I like to think that my work in the political realm and the work of extraordinary researchers like you, Don, uh, in the, 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 the the area of cases and, and 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 I guess you could say phenomenology. All of right. that put together is what set the stage and ultimately made it possible for this group over at the Pentagon and the Department of Defense to make a decision that they were going to take personal action. And by the way, Jim Semivan, one of that group, just gave an interview and he goes into that, he goes into the origin story a little bit more. And thus they launched the Two the Stars of Academy went to yes. the New York Times, and now we're virtually on our way to disclosure. I like to think that we help create the platform on which they could stand, and I would like to think that at the appropriate time, all of us uh, will be acknowledged and we will have a say and, and some input into the uh, implications of disclosure uh, and in the post-disclosure world. And one of my jobs right now is, is it's really focused on that, making sure that as many people as possible know about the people that came before Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, who I completely and utterly support. Mm -hmm. right. anyway, I just had to get that in. So my question well, for you though, is like, if you go back to where you started and where you are now, do you think even the general public is, is wanting that disclosure as much as we all do? Do you think that oh, the, the normal, like the main general public is ready now more than they were even 20 years ago? Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, yeah. The number of people that are absolutely convinced there's an ET presence has grown substantially over 26 years. And when I say this, I'm referring to the world. Okay? Yeah. Not just the United States. The number of people that certainly know the phenomena is, quote, real, which is silly, but they know it's real. 
the number of people that have are finally been convinced that whatever it is, the government's not telling the truth, that has grown, all right? But the idea of disclosure, this idea of the confirmation, which mm -hmm. I do have people out there that still think, forget about it, it's never gonna happen or poo-poo it, but that's one of my contributions. Um, the term disclosure was in play before I got involved. It was it, it pretty much, it was being used extensively by, by Steve Greer in his early work in the 90s. Uh, so I didn't, but what I did was, again, this is a typical activist maneuver is, and it's about language. It's about creating language that works for the activism as opposed to works for the government. I put a capital D on disclosure and said, this is a special thing. This is an event. Uh, it's a noun. And it is uh, the formal confirmation of the ET presence by the head of state. It's the president. However, it happens, telling the American people, uh, yeah, they are not from Schenectady. They're not from Peru. They're not from anywhere except some planet out there. Or they're certainly not, and they're not human, and their craft weren't made at Lockheed. That, that is confirmation. I call that disclosure. And, and that contribution may or may not seem important to people, but it is important, and, and this is why. If a, a major disclosure, a major activist movement, and you know, there's all kinds of activism, small grassroots, things like that. I understand that. But when you get up to the big time, where you need millions and millions of people coming on board in one way or another in order to move government off of a intense position, civil rights, women's rights, women right to vote, you name it. You, you have to have a prize. There has to be a prize at the end of the process. Um, you know, like when I did the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii, I barely made it in time. I think I came at 11.15 at night. Then I passed out in the, in the eight tent. Point is, is that I wanted that medal. If I had not gotten in by midnight that night, I wouldn't have got the medal, okay? And that would have been a tragedy. I, and I made it and I got that medal. Okay, same thing. You need a prize. There was an extraordinary uh, document, docu docuseries called Eyes on the Prize, which is about the civil rights movement. I recommend it to everybody. It is superb. It won awards. The prize. What was the prize? It was the Civil Rights Act. Also the Voting Rights Act, but the Civil Rights Act signed by Johnson. That's what they were going for. Every time somebody in that movement lost faith for a while, had someone they know murdered, lost their job, or whatever they were going through, they kept thinking about that prize. We must get that. I'm going to continue. I'm going to stick it out. And when they went out to try to recruit support and help, why should we help you? What, 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 you just gonna take some money, you know, make some posters or something. And why, why should we help you? Because we have a prize we're trying to get and here it is, and this is what it is. And, and, and do you, don't you see that value of that? And people go, oh yes, I do. This genre never had a prize. It was, it was basically convince the government or convince people that it was real, that right. they're really worried it's easier, or do research, but it didn't have really a defined prize other than we want you all to, 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 be, uh, to believe what we believe or know what we know. The movement needed a prize. Disclosure was the prize. In other mm -hmm. words, we have not, we have, in other words, without the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Movement did not, would not have been considered, would not have been a success, obviously. So that prize has grown in value and it's become more aware. 
Uh, others still debate it. They don't like it. That's okay. They prefer confirmation. I'm willing to go there. Disclosure, confirmation. But that was one of my most important contributions. And of course, it's still something that I continue to push relentlessly, okay? Uh, because that prize must never be lost. We must never lose sight that there is a prize at the end of this movement, and it's massive. It's, it's massive. as big a prize as any, ever. Unprecedented, unprecedented. Stephen, I, I, I want to praise you also in the sense that just prior to your involvement, we had been working with the late Congressman Stephen Schiff of New Mexico. That's right. Representing his own constituents there and those involved with the Roswell incident of 1947. And the timing, as we both know, is everything. And the fact that he was being stonewalled by the Pentagon, well, they, that's, that's their very nature. But then also by the White House and uh, letters to Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen at that time. But most detrimental to him of all was the fact that he was getting no political support on Capitol Hill. Yeah. They weren't circling the wagons. They weren't, even the fact that he was not getting any cooperation from the State Department. It was like, well, wait a minute, you can't do this to a senior congressman. No, you know, the subject of UFOs withstanding. But what has happened, what we see happening to, and the fact is that as that fell apart and this a shift took ill and then we lost him, there was no one to pick up that gauntlet. But you still stepped to the fore, and then you picked up where we left off in many respects. And let us uh, see where we are today. Uh, yeah, look, by the way, this period from 1993 to 1997 is just an extraordinary period. Uh, and you know a lot about it, but there was so much going on. And, and uh, I'm, I'm working... I've got some projects in the works. I'm now splitting my time between Hollywood, California, and, and DC. And I'm going to be, what I'm doing is going to put a lot of focus on that period because there were many things going on, but two that are extraordinary, exopolitically extraordinary, was one, the whole Rockefeller Initiative, which Correct. really was about getting the files and so forth. Later in the initiative, they said, we're going to focus on Roswell, but it, that was that was a mistake and it was a diversion it was an attempt to get this thing out of the way it's but a move the, at all right yeah the fundamental thing going on was look oh we just need the files just give us the files you know and we'll we'll sort them out it'll all work out at the same time there was a big thing going on with roswell independent of the rockefeller initiative and uh that was coming from these 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 places colonel philip corso correct Philip Colonel Corso suddenly turns up with a book that comes out primarily written by William Burns, the publisher, PhD, right. which essentially confirms that Roswell happened. There was right. tech and he saw a body and so forth. Well, this, this was a bombshell, all right? It wasn't like the Rockefeller Initiative where literally people are working with people in the White House. I mean, this is just, uh, Phil Corso in his very last years saying, hey, I'm about to die. I'm writing this book, right? And so uh, Bill, write this up. Here's my notes. And so, oh, wow, this was a problem for the Pentagon. And, 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 and when you have a problem of that magnitude, what they do is they just ignore it. And they say, don't say anything, right? Don't say anything. What can you say? 
he, he was decorated, his career is known. Now he's saying this, but just don't talk. And the funny thing about that is, is that virtually from the get-go, uh, uh, but the day after Roswell was uh, the highest selling book in the Pentagon bookstore for a long time, right? They couldn't keep it on the shelf. Yes, absolutely. And, then, and so, so that's all happening. And then you've got uh, Steve Schiff, Republican, former military, so was wife, right. uh, decides to do something that members of Congress today are somewhat unable to do. It's called serving your constituents. I, I know it's okay. radical, but, yeah. uh, but his constituents were New Mexicans who uh, had a real close tie to Roswell. And they said, why don't you look into it? And he said, sure. And and because he was a patriotic good guy and maybe hadn't really fully understood just how screwed up things were in D.C. And so he starts looking into it and he's getting stonewalled here, there and everywhere right. else. And he gets mad about it and right. then he complains about it. He really starts causing a problem. Now, I'm not saying that anything to do that he, that he, that he shortly thereafter came down with this bizarre squamous cancer that just went and killed him. I'm just right. saying that like he never made it out alive. So he's doing that. Then you've got the 50th anniversary of Roswell coming up, July right. 1997, which is which I went to. It's the first, I think, big thing I ever went to. And that's building up all this anticipation. And they're talking about 200,000 people there in a big article in, 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 in time. The Pentagon is getting... Right. Yeah. Go ahead. 300 reporters alone in Roswell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and so the Pentagon is under all this pressure. Now, in addition, I mean, there is some pressure on the Pentagon coming from, from the Rockefeller Initiative in that uh, Sheila Widnall was tasked uh, right. by Clinton to produce a report about this, meaning, okay, let, you, you study it, Sheila, have the Air Force study it. Big mistake. Never asked the Air Force to study anything about this issue. <laughs> and so she comes out in the report, this $12 million extensive report, which essentially concludes that Roswell was a mogul balloon. Right. I, I, I think she must, know, right. she must know that that was not the highlight of her career. And so they issued that. And then they follow that up with this big press conference at the Pentagon, uh, where they then tried to close the deal by restating uh, the whole mogul balloon, mogul balloon explanation and then explaining all the body talk uh, as crash test dummies that were dropped five years later in Air Force uniforms. And I, you know, who's not, who's, who's not gonna make that mistake? Uh, right. no, it, no, you're right. It wasn't a four foot, very thin gray entity with big eyes. It was an Air Force dummy wearing a you know, six foot. So all of this was happening right then. This was a very intense period. And I, and I know that the Pentagon was worried, meaning this could get out of hand very easily. Well, the festival happened. Uh, Corso dies. Schiff is dead. Died, and yeah. they kind of slip by, okay? And they're moving forward. And at that point, at some point, they're looking out their window and going, eh, the only thing out there could be a problem is Bassett. <laughs> 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 I don't, we don't see problems. I don't think so. 
he's not a Stephen Schiff or a Philip Corso or Hillary Clinton or a John Podesta or any of those people. We don't know who we don't know how who he is, right? Where he came from. That's it. They're good. They're gold. So uh, uh, that that period was very interesting. I could just go on and on. The thing is, one of the reasons I've got some great projects coming up is that the political stuff, this kind of history, which is not necessarily as exciting as, in some ways, as as uh, some of these cases, um, particularly the really ex exotic cases, uh, and some people hate politics, but let me tell you, it's a rich vein. There, there has been a political reality to this from the very get-go, without even having to go back to ancient Egypt, believe it or not. You can just start there in Roswell in 47. And the people need to know this because this politics is where the rubber meets the road in, in, in terms of the average person. Uh, Roswell could be an alien craft, not be an alien craft, the average person ain't going, what difference does it make to me? Why do I care? Ah, but the truth embargo about it and the, the rise of the military intelligence vast complex and the policies under the National Security Act have had a great influence on the lives well, of just about everyone. Changed everything in the last 75 years, whether we're aware of that or not. Uh, I think you would agree with me as well that one of the major victories for all of us in all this is whether we're talking about Lou Elizondo or Chris Mellon or Gary Nolan, even Bob Bigelow, they're mm -hmm. now freely suggesting that we do have hardware. So to suggest that the mogul balloon or the crash dummies have stood the test of time, it still comes back to, yes, but you have hardware, you have wreckage. And where are they getting that from? Why are they even raising that question unless Roswell still rises to the top and the questions remain? Did you or did you not actually recover a flying saucer back in 1947? And that was one of the things that Bill Clinton would still love to know. Uh, it may, he, may, he may actually know. It may be something yes. he'd love to say. But yeah. let me just update your, your listeners. Of just Something just happened. Right, just in the last couple of weeks, which is mind blowing. Okay. Uh, one, uh, Louis Elizondo gave an extensive interview to uh, Jimmy Church on uh, January 30. And was it January 30? Well, pretty recently. Jimmy Church is fade to black, right? Fade to black. Uh, and, and, uh, I'm like, Jimmy just hit him with all the hard questions. I think, I think, and, and, and I knew Louis was going to get him. Uh, Louis was going to get him. That's fine. He's, he's doing all kinds of interviews and, and, and trying to navigate them as best he can. But I mean, Jimmy, who's Jimmy, just really hit him hard. And, and he's, he's maneuvering around them and so forth, but pretty, and he said a couple of fascinating things. Uh, he always goes a little further every time, but he won't cross that line, right? Right. But Jimmy confronted him directly with Roswell, right? And that, and, and that, was, that was kind of tricky. Okay, but anyway, so he, he, he gave this fantastic interview. He, he mentions a number of things. He keeps pushing it. But the two interviews that blew my mind, and by the way, I think that was February uh, 84, January 30, George Knapp, coast to coast. He brings on two former CIA careerists, Jim Semivan, member mm -hmm. of the To The Stars Academy, and the new right. To The Stars they've more. And John Ramirez, yes, yes, who was relatively new, and and I think some people were not sure 
know, he says he's CIA, but is he? Well, Semivan came on first and he confirmed very clearly and explicitly John Ramirez was a career uh, a CIA guy and, right, right. and smarter than him, right? So basically he is, he is he's spread out of the bona fides for um, fight is for um, Ramirez. Okay, now what's so amazing about this? <laughs> let's, 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 let's take a moment. 30 year career CIA, also, I think a 25-year CIA, but he was involved in uh, uh, missile tech and that kind of stuff, has direct information about uh, sightings that they were having and some of their highest level of uh, surveillance of the Soviets. Both of these gentlemen in front of, well, with, with millions of listeners, went into great detail about their personal contact experience with extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. Just think about that for a second. <laughs> Two career CIA people talking about their contact experience, along with other things, right? Okay. Wow. I invite people to go listen to this. This is uh, well, you know, it's four hours minus all the commercials, and and realize that there's there's zero giggle factor here at all, uh, and the CIA is never stepped out to contradict either Ramirez or Semivan. Semivan has now been in place at 17 since he came out as the board member of the TTSA. So I guess they've decided to push this even further. Now, mm-hmm. Elizondo and Mellon are staying away from the, the contact stuff for a very good reason. You know, the, the ET reality itself uh, and the phenomena is, is tough on the politicians, though they're making excellent progress. You try to hit them with contact and their brains will explode, right? There'll be brain matter all over the place. So you right. can't go there. That is, we don't need the contact issue to be on the plate to hold hearings and get the president to confirm the ET presence. So why would, why would John Ramirez and, and, and go there knowing that this was gonna get a lot of uh, awareness and traction? I believe and because, and, but they're not leading the charge. In other words, it's Mellon Elizondo that are leading us, along with now the, the people in the, in the Congress that are picking it up, Rubio, uh, Gillibrand, Diego, and so forth. They're the ones leading us to hearings and going to set that up. These guys are not part of that, but they are part of the reality. And of course, Jim is still a member of the To the Stars group. They're creating what I consider a backwash. Now, what I mean mm. by a backwash, it's like, Anybody that, as this thing moves forward, anybody on the Hill or even some journalists and so forth that, 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 that start to go, ah, you know, look, this will blow over. Um, just kind of wait it out, right? Um, Ukraine's going to be at war very soon. Uh, there are plenty of things to devote ourselves to. This thing will blow over. Uh, not so fast. Because when they, when they turn around to go, okay, let's, let's, let's head back from the hearings, from the nuke witnesses, that pilots and all the other stuff we know about, they turn around and they're looking at CIA guys talking about their contact experience in their bedrooms. And they're going, uh, I don't think we, I don't think there's, I think the back door's closed here. Yeah, there's this backwash coming back at them from the rear that yeah. says you, you can't stop. Right. So uh, Steve, if you were to put your great Karnak hat on, what would you, what do you foresee now? In the near future, and even through the course of uh, the next year, the midterms, and even leading up to the next presidential election, could things break that quickly, 
or uh, are we just are going to be on a slow drip because we both see every day there are new UFO articles, there are new storylines as far as concerning UAPs. We've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. They're not going to be able to reel this one back this time. I loved Karnak. I loved that segment of Johnny Carson. You, you, you never missed. You never missed with that. So, uh, look, uh, hit, no offense, Brittany, none, but history's none. a bitch. Oh, I know. History's <laughs> a bitch, okay? So if Hillary Clinton had won the election, I, com I, I feel highly confident we would already be four years into the post-disclosure era, okay? That's point one. But she didn't. And that created a whole new arena. And we've been navigating that. It's been rather interesting. Okay. Uh, if the political chaos, if things had settled down and we had a, a less chaotic four years of the last administration and a whole lot of other things, we might have made more progress. Um, but that didn't happen either. In fact, it got worse and worse. But then, as that particular era in our politics started to come to an end, and a lot of people, particularly uh, even at the Pentagon, were, were forecasting there was going to be a change of administration before they could anybody could get their hopes up. The biggest pandemic in human history arrived. Okay, it wasn't on my menu. I didn't order it. I don't know who the hell ordered that, but it, it, there it was. And some people will say, uh, you know, Steve, really, 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 it, it's a flu. It, it isn't as big as is is and, and anyway, even if it's not a flu, it's it was it's not bigger than 1819. Au contraire. All right, let me be clear. If that virus had turned up in 1918, 1919, with the technology and biotech we had at the time and the ability to address it that we have now, it would have killed more than 50 million people it would probably have killed hundreds of millions of people, right? The only thing that's preventing that now is the massive biotechnology that we have created and the resources and hospitals and everything else. And the, and, and, and the fact that uh, over 3,000 nurses have lost their lives trying to save us, yeah. all of that. That wasn't really there then. This is the worst pandemic in human history in terms of the total mass infected Mm -hmm. and and um, the impact on the society. But fortunately, it's still not up to 219 or the Black Plague in terms of raw deaths. But that doesn't mean the virus is not the worst ever. Okay, so that showed up. And, and really, it's made it difficult. Okay, so we weather that, we weather that, we weather that. And I say we, I'm really talking about Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon, and those that are trying to get things together for the hearings. They, they, they keep at it. The, the media pretty much stays with us. You can find over a thousand articles on my site right now linked all about the To The Stars Academy and everything that happened after that. Over a thousand articles. And then things are starting to look promising. And I'm predicting, you know, I could see hearings in the March, in March. And then Vladimir Putin decides to become Genghis Khan. I, 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 He's, he's one of the richest guys in the world. He's got it made, and he decides, you know, I, 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 I really want the Ukraine. I want it really bad. I really, really want the Ukraine. 
you know, you know, the one with the giant nuclear exclu uh, exclusion zone there because the Chernobyl explosion was the worst disaster. He, he actually wants more access to the Black Sea. And so he parked 200,000 troops around the border at a time when we can photograph it all. And there's every single tank. We, we see every single one. We watch them moving around. Uh, I didn't see that. On, that wasn't on my menu either, Don. I'm telling you, I'm going to change restaurants. So once again, I, I don't know. I, I think without the Ukraine and without, and if, and if the B2 Omicron variant, sometimes referred to as stealth Omicron, that isn't as bad as they're starting to intimate it may be and suddenly become that sixth wave, we could easily have had hearings this, this spring in March or April. Once those hearings get underway, there's no going back. But I just don't know. We um, only have we only have just a couple minutes, Steve. But we would all agree that anything short of congressional hearings, we're almost at a uh, a break point. That to have arrived at such a a crucial crossroads as to what is the ultimate victory for all the collective time that those of us who have been pushing for disclosure, who have been working in the trenches, that anything short of immunity for whistleblowers, both military and civilian, to go on the congressional record and state, you know, describe their own profound experiences that will leave no doubt we're dealing with someone else's hardware, someone else's technology. That's, I think it's quite that simple right now. Hearings, 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 right? Yeah, well, let me clarify. But, you know, we want to have immunity in this case. These witnesses will be able to testify uh, under oath. They, they won't need immunity. They're not going to be, there's not going to be any problem for them. If they have anything classified they're asked about, that will be given in classified sessions. So that's not going to be an right. issue. But yeah, look, the president could announce tomorrow. You don't have to have congressional hearings. The, we, the reason for congressional hearings is because it's a process that will be much more productive and positive and open, and it will be the, it will be the responsible way to go about it. But, but Biden can announce it tomorrow. I'm aware that a meeting was held not that long ago uh, over in, I think it was China, in which uh, the Russians and the Chinese got together and made the decision which China was going to disclose. Um, there have been other things that are in the works. I, another was that, I was at that meeting. You're the one that told me about it. Yes. Sorry, yes. Don. That's out of the bag. So, so see how see how up to date I am. See how much stuff I. Oh, I got Absolutely. it from you. So, so you see, anything could happen, uh, and all I can say is is that I believe that we're on an irreversible path now. No matter what Omicron throws at us, no matter what country Putin invades, uh, disclosure is going to happen because too much is out the door, too many people are on the record. The internet never, and nothing goes away on the internet as many people have been found out, unfortunately. Uh, and so we're gonna get it. But there's reason to see some more delays ahead. But I would leave you with this and, I've made, and, and I won't make it, uh, it'll be very short, but this is something I'm talking about a lot. You'll hear me say over and over again. We got a whole lot of awful things to be developing in the next uh, year or so that one could say would be a, a reason why disclosure would have to be postponed. I will make exactly the opposite case. 
getting disclosure done, ending the truth embargo, and getting the world on the same page about this ET reality may be the best thing we've got in yeah. our bag to right. prevent most of right. the awful stuff that the, it, it is being projected to happen, right? And so it's, it's just, in other words, we can't let bad history postpone this event because it's only going to make that bad history even worse. And I've been saying this for almost 20 years. And as, and as you told me recently, as we discussed recently, Don, wouldn't it be fascinating to be able to know somehow how the 20th century would have gone if in 1947, before the, the, the Soviets uh, tested their first atom bomb or the nuclear, their hydrogen bomb, before things really got going in the Cold War, if, it, if Roswell had broken it out, if the ET presence had become known right there in Roswell, which almost happened, I am certain the 20th century would have been much, much more, uh, much more, much more productive and, and less destructive. Everything would have been put in a new perspective and at a higher plane in that we would have realized for the first time we're not the big kids on the block any longer. There's something, there's something out there to look forward to, something, yes. something yeah. we all could look forward to, as opposed to uh, I'm an autocrat and I'm going to get make a whole bunch of money and I'm going to invade some country because it makes me feel better or whatever ideology is being sold. Most people go, yeah, well, that's interesting. But man, there's this there's this there's a galaxy there. And, and we could actually go there. And there's other people there. Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, who may intercede, who may actually step in and always remind us that uh, we're not running things as uh, we've always thought. Well, we're, we're not the only people running things. I think we're right. still running our affairs. Our uh, affairs. And, and uh, the idea of intervention is interesting, uh, but I wouldn't count on it. I, I'm simply saying that the human race has gotten to a point where it's, it's not just because it's the truth. But because of learning that something that to me has been obvious since I was like 13, that the galaxy has got quite a few civilizations uh, and they're in various stages of development, they're able to travel at will. We're at the point where we have to know that because without that additional truth, uh, our, our behavior, our past, our virtual, social, geopolitical genetics are such that we're just going to blow the hell out of everything. I mean, that's what we're going to do, you know? And it's like a teenager that's got to that critical point where the parents know if they don't get a hold of, of what's going on and get the kids straightened out, he's going to prison for life. I mean, and, 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 and that's not what they've been planned when they conceived the kid. We're at that point now as a civilization and uh, you and Brittany and I and all of our colleagues are just trying to help. Yeah. Well, but You've heard me say in the past, Steve, if, if we're wrong about all this, it changes nothing. <laughs> right. And the naysayers and the debunkers who have run interference and prevented the truth coming forward all these years, if they're wrong, it changes everything. Yes. And, uh, no, I should add, if we are wrong, it will change me. I become <laughs> really, really depressed. <laughs> Most of the world will not, no, not Steve. We know you're not. Yeah, <laughs> mention your website again and anything else you'd like to uh, mention as far as uh, coming up. Uh, paradigmresearchgroup.org. All right. right. All one word. 
got some, some announcements coming out pretty soon. I'm going to be reissuing re some updates pretty soon. Uh, uh, so look for me to start popping up. Uh, got some big plans, uh, all related to, again, getting this issue out, not simply in the U.S., but worldwide. So I'm, I'm getting all pumped up again. And again, uh, I, uh, what can I say? Uh, I, I had to give up my plans to join the Ukrainian army. So that's out. Um, <laughs> oh so so, so sh short of these other options, uh, I shall continue to be a pain in the ass in the United States government. <laughs> Well, Don, that was an amazing interview tonight with our, with our guest. I, I can't, I'm honestly at a loss for words on where to begin. I think bringing him on and kind of showing that there's a, there's a cheerleader in the corner of the UFO and UFA, UAP community right now is huge. And to know that he's been pushing this for the media and for the disclosure for so many years and having somebody being actively involved. I don't think a lot of people know about that. Do you? No, no, no. The very idea of a uh, UFO lobbyist activist mm -hmm. would be something unheard of. And the fact that Stephen Bassett has been championing the, uh, the very you know, disclosure movement for now 25 years. And that it finally appears as though it may be coming to uh, fruition. And even if we fall short there's nothing as far as wrong with making the effort, especially given the subject, that it's something that big. We're talking the biggest story of the millennium. And uh, who would not want to be part of that race? Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing is, is that the key reward is the disclosure. And so even for us, no earthly explanation. Our whole thing is come here for the truth, for the disclosure on all things. But this one in particular for you and I, because this is huge. This is huge for our community. This is huge for everyone, including Stephen Bassett and everyone further on in this community. It's for all of us. And I think it's so important that there's a place that they can come to and vocalize all of that without any worry or concern and know that they're completely supported here on the show. And given that the very title of our program is going to cover much more than just the UAP UFO uh, phenomenon. We'll be uh, from uh, as far as uh, week after week, we'll be having more and more guests concern everything from the paranormal to ghosts to Bigfoot to uh, all types of uh, mysteries that still abound even in the 21st century. And we look forward to tackling these topics having on guests that will fascinate us as much as our audience. So with that, Britt, if you'd like to, uh, where can everyone contact us? Yeah, absolutely. And again, thank you everyone for listening to the show again. You can come find us at No Earthly Explanation on Facebook, Instagram. You can also listen to us at Spotify, Apple, and Anchor. If you have any comments or suggestions or just want to talk to us, feel free to email us at noearthlyexplanation at gmail.com. Or you can send us a wonderful voice message over at anchor.fm forward slash no earthly explanation. And we really hope to hear from you. And again, listen in for our next guest, which we will tell you when it is time. Right, Don? Right, Britt. <laughs> right as always, fun time. Always a fun time talking, Don. And again, I look forward to our next conversation of 
the unexplained and the unknown. And until next time, don't get into any trouble. Okay. I need you. <laughs> It'll be better. Huh? Thanks. You take care. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate and review this episode. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyright. Any previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Information and opinions stated in this podcast should not be construed as medical advice. Please be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metatomics at metatomics.org or find us on social media for other unique content.